early on in ministry, I felt the pressures and demands of wanting to see kingdom impact in, in the city and in different areas. And if I'm being honest, I could start to look at our families, at people, at volunteers, at different folks as sort of a means to an end. And the shift that had to happen, I, mean, I think was beginning to see them as the end themselves. Hello and welcome to another episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jaden here. If you are listening in and you are new to the podcast and to the work of CCLN, I want to say a very special welcome to you. Thanks for giving us a bit of your time. It's precious. We don't take it for granted. We're so thankful that you're listening in. The heart of this podcast is to create space for pastors to Deeply consider what it means to lead Jesus's church faithfully under his leadership in this unique time in the nation of Canada. And the sense you're going to get as you listen to more and more episodes in this thread is that this podcast is really about heart and vision more than it's about strategy and tactics, though we need really good thinking on those things. Our team just feels a real burden to see more and more pastors serve Jesus with delight and faithfulness out of a place of abiding with Christ. And we want to do what we can to see Canada full of pastors like that. And so we hope that's your experience as you listen to this conversation and as you read or listen to or attend the different things that we put together at CCLN for you. We're just thrilled to be with you in whatever capacity we can be for the journey. Okay, for today's episode, we have Joshua Butler with us, one of the lead pastors at Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. Prior to 2018, Josh served as an outreach pastor for 15 years in Portland, Oregon at Imago Day Community. He's also a writer. He wrote the books Pursuing God, as well as the very popular Skeletons in God's Closet, which is an apologetic on exclusivity, hell, violence in the Old Testament, just the easy subjects. Uh, our team highly recommends that one to you. If you haven't yet read it, it is phenomenal. Redemption Church is right by Arizona State University, which is one of, if not currently, the largest university in the United States. And this kind of proximity in location has made Josh, who is already so sharp, an even sharper thinker about unique ways to do mission, apologetics, formation, and evangelism. All in all, we are just so excited we got to sit down with him and we're excited we get to share this conversation with you. Here's a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll jump in with Josh and Jason. Today's episode is made possible by our friends at the Canadian Bible Society. We wanna highlight a resource they developed called the Bible Course, a course that was created to help the average person engage with God's word in a deeper way. The Bible course includes eight weeks of video teaching that are all designed to connect the events, books, and characters of scripture together into one big story. This course can easily be run in small groups and even as a great follow-up to something like Alpha if you're currently running that. To check out the first video for free and to learn more about the course, just head to biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse and you'll find all you need. That's biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse. Well, Josh, it is such a delight to be with you on Zoom today, and you're just, I'm such a fan. I'm a fan of you as a communicator, as a writer, as a pastor, but as a person. Like, you're someone 
who in my experience just has such a profound gift like an intellect and articulation and yet somehow you carry yourself so approachable and thoughtful and empathetic and listening. And so, dude, thank you so much for being you and for making time to be with us today, man. Oh my gosh, Jason. Thank you, man. Dude, I've loved connecting more recently and getting to know you more. And just, I'm so honored and uh, stoked to get to have a conversation and oh, yeah, press into some of these topics together. It's so good. I, I'm excited to chat about a lot of things because I think your body of work and your approach to pastoral ministry is really... I think it's really important for at least the context as Canadians that we feel right now as we're trying to think thoughtful about mission, introduce people to the Bible in, in an effective way, and, and, and to be that salt and light presence in our world in the midst of all that's going on. And I think you embody that well. And I was just thinking there's so many places we go just to start. I'd love for people to just get a window into your world. And so maybe just where you're at, where your work is, your family. I know you got a big birthday party this afternoon. Tell us about your world, man. Totally, man. So currently living in Tempe, Arizona, uh, which is home to Arizona State University. It's uh, like the largest public university in America. And so it's uh, kind of a big college town, loads of college students who are coming, wrestling with their faith often, you know, or, or exploring faith. And uh, it's a fun environment to do ministry in. Uh, originally from Portland, Oregon, uh, was kind of born and raised in Oregon and was a pastor in Portland for a little over 15 years uh, doing ministry there. And th that was amazing. Uh, currently, um, my wife Holly and I are coming up on our 16 year anniversary this week and we've got three Amazing. young kids. So 12 year old daughter and eight and seven year old boys today is their last day of school. So we're having a big oh, end of the year party school, for school. school party I love with it. a bunch of my daughter's friends all coming over. We're going to party it up, kick off the summer. So excited about that. And it's already over a hundred degrees here in, uh, Arizona. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's heating up. It's amazing. I'm curious. This is not a hard hitting question, but I have a theory. Portland is an export for some great Christian writers and communicators, which is interesting because <laughs> Portland is not like, what do you have? Have you figured that out? Like surely you and Donald Miller and John Mark have gotten together and you've talked about, you know, this Portland thing that's being exported. So what, what is it about <laughs> Portland that's exporting such great Christian writers? That's a great question, man. I don't know. You know, I think there's maybe a couple of dynamics. One is relates to Christianity is, you know, Portland's kind of an environment that's um, uh, a little more antagonistic to the to the Christian faith than than the norm. And, and there's even just kind of an air in Portland of kind of an anti-institutional, anti-tradition. Like I think of the pioneers coming out and like, be your own person. You got to stake out a claim. And, and there's some really negative ways that can go. But there's also this cool environment in Portland where there's a high degree on um, a person, a person's kind of gifting and personality infused. So mm. there's like almost no, for example, no chain restaurants in the city. You can buy everything's like mom and pop shop, and it's got their own local flavor and unique contextualization. So you kind of soak in that atmosphere. I think you breathe that in. You know, growing up there, and you have this uh, kind of environment of um, bringing uniqueness and particularity and a, a, your own kind of flavor or style to things that that can be helpful. Um, but then also, I think when it comes to Christianity, you're in an environment where you're seeking to both understand and articulate your faith mm. in a context that feels like uh, more antagonistic towards it. And I think that pressure at times can provoke creativity in a helpful way of going, okay, I've got to mm. try and think through how can I creatively and strategically both understand my own faith and articulate it in an environment where it's not necessarily taken for granted. Um, so mm. I think we see that times in the church, sometimes the church historically is the most creative when it's under pressure from the surrounding society and has to 
seek Christ and depend on him mm. in unique ways to live into his kingdom. I love that. It's a very, um, it gives me a lot of hope for the potential of this moment. I think then a lot of ways it feels like, you know, with all the shifts and pressure and, you know, I, it is a time for, I think, creativity and new response and mission and, and discipleship. And so that's an exciting, that's a, that's a word of hope. Just receive that as a word of hope. Um, maybe we could, I'd love just to rewind and, and hear a little bit about your story of, I kind of want to hear how you got into ministry, but maybe before that, how you found yourself following Jesus. Definitely. Yeah. So a little bit of my backstory. Um, I, longer story, you know, so I, growing up, uh, family was not Christian, but when I was about five, six years old, I was kind of just learning to read. And a friend of my mom's was a pastor and he gave her this children's Bible and said, Hey, maybe your son would be interested in reading this. I was like, okay. So I picked it up and I began diving in and I fell in love with it. And I think, wow. uh, looking back in retrospect, I think some of the reasons I fell in love with it, uh, when I say fall in love, I would read it every day. And wow. not like this legalistic, like I have to, or God's going to be angry with me, but more like, dude, there's life here. And uh, when I think back on that, you know, some of the themes that really struck me had to do with God being a God of the outcast and the outsider. So hmm. I was a kid who, you know, today kind of, I got, I got the big hair and the big glasses and now that can be kind of hip or whatever. When I was a kid, that was like, dude, dorky, you know, like I was kind of the last kid picked on the playground, sort of socially awkward, um, was, didn't really have many friends, you know, or, mm. uh, and, and really felt like an outsider and kind of a reject, if you will. And not only at school, but even there were dynamics, um, you know, where I felt awkward at school and a little bit uh, afraid at times at home. And, mm. and in the midst of all that, I dove into this biblical story where do God was a God who chose a nation of slaves as his people like out of all the mighty powerhouse of the world he chooses the last and the least and goes this is going to be my people and i remember it was really the old testament stories that i was drawn into and really wow. found so captivating so abraham where you're going to be the father of many you know this great nation but many nations but then he's like in his 90s he's got no kids you know or moses you're going to deliver your people but then he's out herding sheep in the wilderness for 40 years because he murdered the Egyptian, like he botched his calling, it feels like. Or David, like, dude, you're going to be king, but then he's spending a decade on the run from Saul. And I remember these pictures, even in this children's Bible as a kid, where it's like Abraham was sad and mm -hmm. Moses was dejected, you know, and, and David was scared on the run for his life and feeling like, dude, this is a God who is honest with the raw parts of our story wow. and realities of our world. And I, I, yeah, he sees those. And so I think I grew up with a sense that God is there and the story is beautiful and there's something really powerful, powerful there, but I didn't have the community around me or things to connect that to more particularly Jesus and the gospel and, and, and the Christian faith and community. So later in high school, I began attending church with a friend and long story short, you know, they invited me to a basketball thing at their church. I had a blast. I kind of start coming with you. And, and from there I began kind of like, I'm really interested in this. I went to college and I said, okay, God, I'm going to try this. Wow. I want to try following you. So I went to campus group and I said, you know, how do you do this? How do you follow Jesus? And, um, really God bless them. <laughs> but I think the group I was with and kind of the culture there was a bit legalistic in the people yeah. I happened to get connected to. And so I got like a big list of 
go to this Bible study and do the 6 a.m. prayer gathering and go share your faith on campus and like lead worship at our, you know, weekly ministry. And so I started doing all this activity. Um, and whenever I got still seemed distant or empty, it was just, oh, we'll do more, you know? And so I just mm. kept stacking on all this activity. And to make a very long story short, I kind of got frustrated into this point where um, that summer I rejected God. I said, and God, if this is you, it's not working and I want mm. nothing to do with it. And so I, uh, yeah, said, you know, F it, God in the backyard and, you know, and, and uh, said, God, I'm, I'm done with this. And it was in that moment when I rejected God, you know, like just kind of at, at, at my, my worst, I'm screaming at him in this backyard, whatever. And um, it was there that I encountered like the presence of the risen mm. Christ. You know, like it was the presence of Jesus, like being in the throne room with the king. And the thing I heard him say was, Josh, you've had this whole thing backwards. Like you thought this was about you coming out to find me. And the whole time I've been the one coming out to find you. Mm. And that just flipped everything I thought I knew about Christianity, about God on its head. Like, man, this isn't about me going out to find God. This is God coming to find us and the power mm. of grace and um really struck me in Ephesians where Paul says it's by grace through faith you've been saved. And I realized, man, I've had it backwards. I thought it was by faith through grace. Like I come to you, God, I show you my faith. I do all these things for you. And that creates this channel where you're like, now I can show you grace. Oh no, it's backwards. Like it starts with mm. grace. Like it's, it's God and God is gracious goodness. And faith is getting our eyes off of ourselves to receive the God who's come for us in Christ. And yeah, so that was really where, Jesus, I'm all in. And yeah. It's beautiful, man. Oh, I love hearing that, dude. And one of the one of the last books that you published, um, The Pursuing God, it seems like some of those themes you had the opportunity to sort of unpack in more detail. And um, you know, just this idea of like the love of God that pursues. I just would love just if you're comfortable wading in a little bit more to that reflection of like, because I think we, you you said like talk about the campus group, and I know that you don't want to be critical and neither do I, but there's this sense by which even as a pastor, I'm kind of like, how do I give people that next step? How do I help them mm. do spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines? And I just love to hear just a little more of a deeper reflection on like, like how do we hone our pastoral instinct then? If there is someone in our care, in our college kid, how do we help them grow in that deeper understanding that helped actually liberate you and then draw you deeper? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Well, yeah, it's funny. You mentioned uh, Pursuing God where, you know, I, I kind of felt like I wrote my first book, The Skeletons of God's Closet was a little more directed at like our culture, some of the questions our culture is asking. But then the second one, The Pursuing God, I'm like, I feel like more I want to write this for my daughter. You know, like mm. what are the things at the heart of the faith that I'd really want her to know? And and the most central thing I think is, dude, it's not, it, it's about the pursuing God, like the God who is coming relentlessly after us in our world, ultimately at the cross, like the cross is the climax of his pursuit. And practically as a pastor, I think one of the temptations I've had to wrestle with is you start, you know, I feel early on in ministry, I felt the pressures and demands of wanting, needing to get things done, you know, wanting to see kingdom impact in, in the city and in different areas. And if I'm being honest, I could start to look at our families at people at volunteers at different folks as sort of a means to an end of mm. those things and the shift that had to happen for me i think was beginning to see them as the end themselves you know in, in the sense of going 
um, their own formation, Christ poured into them, like them formed in Christ. And, and that meant, you know, what, one of the things that's, that's meant practically over the years, I think has been a willingness to let a lot of ministry horses die <laughs> for the sake of caring for the leaders who are leading that, you know? So, um, I mean, just this last week we had a, a meeting with, um, one of our really powerful ministries here in the church body that I, it's close to my heart. It's powerful. But I just, I was praying going into it and feeling a strong sense that um, one of the leaders was moving to a new city and the other leader, I, I had a strong sense was feeling a bit burnt out. They'd had some other life circumstances come, come mm-hmm. to bear, you know? And I, I, I went into that meeting now a little more seasoned as a pastor, you know, just kind of opening it going, um, I want to create the freedom for us to end this ministry, you know, wow. like not only that, but like, I'm going to basically declare right now, like we're, we're ending it unless you guys convince me, can convince me that you really want to keep it going, hmm. you know? And, and I saw the other person almost like well up with tears, you know, like, like realizing like came in expecting this heavy conversation, thinking they were going to let us down and the rest of the team. Cause it's a really powerful thing. And suddenly the freedom of going, wow. well, you care more about my heart than you do about, just getting stuff done, you know? And, um, yeah. And so I, I think it, at, at the end of the day, I think the, the question of going to, I want to care for the hearts of Jesus's disciples that he's mm-hmm. entrusted me to shepherd, not just try and control their behavior. And ideally mm-hmm. the formation, the ministries, the different things, you know, like all those are kind of vehicles to an end of like, dude, what God's, doing in them and, and the, the, the good works he's created for them to do, you know, like it's, um, ideally when it's operating in the power of the spirit, like those are helping accomplish that. But I think there's always that danger of the, the, the means becomes the end. And then mm-hmm. the, the heart of the disciple gets, can get, um, kind of used or trampled in the process. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for those I, reflections, man. Yeah. I was really impacted. I remember, I think it was the Advent Conspiracy. Do you remember Rick McKinley? Mm-hmm. You might. Were you on and staff? We're still good when friends. That, we talk all the time. That, yeah, totally. When that, yes. when that when that book came out. Yes, totally. And I, I just first of all, it was like probably the first time I might have been mm, grade eleven or twelve in high school, and it was the first window into a few things. One was like just a really easy accessible read that kind of like went deep into scripture, pulled out themes and helped me see the Advent narrative in a fresh way. So I was special. I was like, whoa, the Bible is very compelling. So it felt fresh that way. But then it was like this real call to a practical missional response to scripture, to a neighborhood. And I just remember me and some friends beginning to go, well, we could do Christmas different this year. We could you know, yeah. receive less, give away more, be thoughtful and creative. And uh, and then that was my kind of like intro to Imago Day and to your work. And that's where you were on staff. And I just would love to hear a bit about how you found yourself on that team. Um, yeah. and, then, and then about that church, because I think it's a special church that some of the things in the language that was coming out of Imago Day is more common now, but it felt like a very sort of like it was a unique export from the States is what I'm getting at. It felt really fresh at the time and I think really important. So I just love to hear your story into ministry and then a bit more about Imago Day. 
Definitely, man. No, I dude, I loved uh man, Advent Conspiracy was amazing. And I love Imago Day. I still, you know, it, it, I consider it man my spiritual roots and a lot of my 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 home family. I really grew up in the faith there, you know. Mm. So uh I mentioned kind of college and then this encounter with Jesus and then traveled a bit, did some internships, worked around, and then came to Portland. And you mentioned how I found myself there. Um, I was actually working at a software company, um, had a great job. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to live simply, pay off my student loans, and then I'm going to get overseas or have the freedom and flexibility to just go do whatever in God's world, you know? Um, and I started attending uh, at the time of Mogger Day was like a church plant. So it was about a year in, it was about 50 people. It was a few blocks from my house. And so I found this little church plant, you know, and I got, got involved and started serving and, you know, musicians, so I was doing some music stuff. And at the time I was not considering pastoral ministry at all. Like I was not even on the radar. I was um, really wrestling with God going, God, I feel like there's these three big things you put in me. I don't know which one to choose, you know, and mm. software is great, but it wasn't, you know, either of the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was, um, you know, mission was one. And so like loving our neighbors, loving the world, like how do we give our lives away for the sake of God's kingdom and in the city and the world? Uh, mission was one. And I was kind of leaning towards that. I wanted to pay off my loans and get back overseas and work internationally. Uh, second one was music. I loved writing music, playing music. I would play around town, that kind of thing. Um, and the third one was teaching, like with mm. um, loved reading, writing. I loved uh, teaching and just the power of ideas. And so I was kind of going, well, God, you can't do all three. So which one do I choose? You know, do I kind of get overseas and work internationally like I was planning? Or do I kind of try and rally a band and, you know, make it all, you know, go, go the music route? Or do I um, go after the master's, PhD, whatever, and try and do a teaching route? And I remember very clearly it felt like the sense strong sense from God going, I've put all three of those things in you for a reason. I can mm. bring them all together. Wow. I was like, no, there's no way. You know? And so about six months praying and sensing this. And, and then I got asked to come on staff at Imago. And I said, no way. <laughs> like, because it didn't look like either of those three. It was for like communities pastor or something to that effect. You know, like, and I was like, no, not interested. And they're like, well, will you pray about it? So, okay, so I prayed about it. And it just felt like very clear from God. Yeah, this is the next season. And man, boom, it was crazy how within six months, my job became mission, music, and teaching. Basically, wow. those three roles, teaching classes, leading our school of theology, leading one of our worship teams, writing a lot of music, and, and leading our outreach ministries in the city and, and internationally um, eventually. And man, and that, and it was just amazing. And one of the really killer things I think was dude Rick had Rick McKinley the lead pastor there had had and has such creative missional vision for going you, you hear that language a lot like missional you know but it yeah. can mean a lot of different things and I feel like Rick really has this uh has had the spirit inspired creative vision for unleashing the gifts in the church body for ministry you mm. know and um so one of the mottos that we had uh, that I, I really feel like I, I, I learned from Rick, um, but was pastors can't start ministries. And hmm. the idea going, you know, I'm this new missions pastor and this temptation of like, okay, I'm going to go start the homeless ministry or the refugee ministry or whatever. Um, but then the idea being like, if I do that, A, I'm a bottleneck, you know, uh, that, that I'm trying to lead everything. And, and that's limited by how much time and capacity and energy I have. Um, and B, the people in our congregation have way better ideas than I do. Like they are teachers in the schools. They know how to engage and reach our schools. They are 
you know, foster parents in the foster working in the foster care system. They know that world. They know what they actually need. They are, you know, in all these different spheres of our city and culture. And so pastors can't start ministries, meaning I, my role is not to start the things it's to unleash, to, to surface, equip and unleash the vision of people in the congregation. Hmm. And part of the beauty of that was, man, at any given time, there are 15 to 20 different ministries rolling. We would provide grants, we would coach, we give equipping and things. And you have like these 15 to 20 ministries, some of them small, like five people serving people uh, coming out of extreme surgeries and essentially like a, having a disability for six months. Another like 100 people working in the foster care system with like loads of things happening there. There was such a diversity wow. of the types of ministries that that sparked um, and getting to like celebrate those stories of what God was doing and ways people were encountering Jesus in it and coming to faith and and also just the tangible impact of the presence of God's kingdom hmm. in the city. It was, um, yeah, it was really beautiful. And then there was some big picture stuff like, you know, like, uh, like Advent conspiracy, re-envisioning how we approach Christmas as a faith community. Um, and Love Portland, kind of a big working with our local schools and some of the challenges they were facing with uh, churches across the city. Yeah, but, but I think one thing I just sum up, you know, that was common in Portland that I loved was churches working together wow. for the good of the city as a witness to Jesus's pursuing love that Jesus wants to pursue, you know, our neighbors through us mm-hmm. as his people. The churches working together piece is interesting because I think everyone listening, I can't imagine any past that doesn't think at some level that's a good idea. But then in practice, it can be difficult. And I wonder if in a context like Portland, probably primarily in the Canadian context, where it's like on our own, we can't, like we don't have just these massive churches or just the massive resource. So, And it puts us in a position to go like, we do need to work together and men, obviously we'd be way better together. And I just wonder if sometimes it's like certain settings are more like some of the things that could be perceived as weaknesses are actually an opportunity to force us into a partnership that can be more effective. Cause just interested in hearing that in Portland, like this working together, I'm like, yeah, that's actually what we're seeing pop up around cities all over Canada's churches going, we could serve schools better together. Definitely. Yeah. Which was great. And I, I think two factors that really helped that um, one was Again, I think there's some of it, the the context, as you mentioned in Canada, I'm sure too, and in Portland, where there is sort of a cultural antagonism to the gospel and there's not as many churches there. And so I think when you feel more like an entrenched minority or something, you know, like you're kind of like, dude, we need each other to survive sort of, you know, like uh, survival mentality um, we're, and, and that. But out of that, I, I found like pastors across the city, we were really building relationships, wow. spending time learning from each other, learning best practices. I, as an outreach pastor, I had a monthly gathering for a long time where not, I wasn't leading it, but I was a part of it where outreach pastors from across the city or those who were interested in that as pastors, you know, we'd gather together and share ideas. That would happen with worship pastors and lead pastors and others too. And another thing I think was really helpful for that was um, practically was having a neutral convener, you know, mm. where I think if if we as a Mago Day had been saying, hey, we're starting this thing for the city and we want y'all to come and join, it would have there's just an implicit, it can feel kind of territorial. Are you trying totally. to get us into your thing? And, um, and there, you know, uh, Kevin Palau, the Lisa Palau Association in Portland, uh, they were a nonprofit 
parachurch, but very much for the church. Uh, and they really helped tremendously, I think, by being willing to be that neutral convener mm. that was, and still are, that was helping to host, to connect and host churches working together in a way that could avoid some of the territorialism because it wasn't wow. like the Mago Days thing or, you know, whatever different churches thing. It was, uh, it was a parachurch that was helping to facilitate some of that. So there was the relational fabric amongst church leaders, but some of the organizational logistical fabric mm. with, uh, um, with a parachurch that removed those temptations. That's a great insight, man, because I, I, I noticed that also in South Florida, there's incredible city movement. And there was another charity that they, what they did, and they had a person who connected with pastors, were four pastors, but became that kind of neutral. I met Kevin Plow as well. And obviously a lot of listeners would know his dad, Luis Palau, incredible evangelist. And uh, taking that same sort of passion for the gospel, but then like Kevin doing it in this different way of going, how can we mobilize, connect? It's really profound and a special thing. I just wonder, maybe there's people listening and that might be a unique gifting that you have is to like create that safe, unique way to pull people mm. together. I just think that's, it's amazing. It's something I'm praying for in cities across Canada a lot is like, could we find effective, meaningful ways to love one another as pastors, be in it together, and then have a more collective impact in our city. Because I think we have more resources than we think. There's so many people. Yes. And, and there's real practical needs. Like in the background, you might hear there's the sirens going by. And yes. you know, the, the street corner we're in in Vancouver right now, I can name some of the needs around and might be too big for our church alone. But this together work, I just think there's so such opportunity there. That's great. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could shift gears a little bit. While you're, while you're at Imago Day, did you write Skeletons in God's Closet in, in, while you lived in Portland? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think, I think, I can't remember for sure. I think that came out in 2014, something like that. Yeah. So and I wrote it kind of in that 2012, 2014 area. It's, it's an amazing resource. Like, I don't, I know it's, it's an amazing book and piece of literature, but it's a resource in the sense that you've chosen to engage in that book specifically three of like, precarious might be even an understatement topics, topics like hell yeah exactly like like hell and um war in the old testament and and justice and these themes that are like you know i think sometimes we're like ah maybe we just maybe there's a guest speaker we could bring in to talk about these or maybe we can just avoid that passage of scripture and you're in a city like portland which you know is critical and thoughtful and smart mm. and skeptical of the church skeptical mm. skeptical of the bible and uh, I'd just love to hear a little bit about your journey into not just writing that book, but those types of conversations, because I think we need a toolkit to go, how can we, those that want to like, that believe that God's word, that story, the way you talked about, the story is life and it is truth. And yet yeah. there's huge, more than ever before, at least in the North American context, an obstacle between the average person in our cities and that story. And things like you addressed represent some of those obstacles. And so I'd just love to hear like, yeah, what kind of motivated you to wade into that territory? And what can we learn from your journey doing it? Definitely, man. Well, uh, first of all, I think kind of the reason I wrote it, it was not, the motivation was not like, hey, I'm going to be the answer man and here's all the answers to fix the questions, whatever, you know. A lot of it really came out of my own story of man going, these were questions I wrestled with um, after coming to faith and kind of growing up because a lot of it, you know, so in college, you know, I mentioned I have that encounter with Jesus and the next year I go back. But now loads of my friends in my program, 
my, my immediate community are not Christians are actually, were very hostile to the faith, like explicitly. I, I could share stories, but man, it was like, dude, how can you be a Christian? You know, like people angry yeah, and yeah. yelling at me or whatever, you know, and I'm just like, dude, all I said is I love Jesus, you know? Um, I remember and, one of my friends from school was like, you're a Christian? That's the dumbest thing I've ever yes. heard. <laughs> Totally, totally. And then, but the tone totally. has changed. The tone has changed. You probably felt this. It's gone from that's yeah. dumb to yeah. now the tone's a little bit different. Like that's it's immoral. It's immoral. That and that's an yeah. interesting shift. I don't yes. know if we'll get to chat about that, but that's there is a change totally. in tone. Totally. And I found myself in the spot of going, dude, I love Jesus. I can't deny Jesus. I found that, but I, I don't know how to make sense of that. And it pressed me into reading the Bible, you know, and really mm. reading scripture with fresh eyes and going, what does scripture have to say about these things? And as I did, I began finding these paradigm shifts happening of going like, okay, my friends have this caricature, this conception that looks one way, but when I'm reading in scripture and even if I couldn't always name it, like I, there was a sense of like, dude, this feels different than the way they're describing things. Mm. And um, really over a decade, you know, there were just these gradual paradigm shifts as I immersed myself in the biblical story that I think were confronting some of the cultural caricatures of these topics and reclaiming like a healthy biblical historic understanding. And I've found the biblical vision really beautiful, even if there were some hard, you know, areas to, to grapple with. And at the end of the day, the biggest reason I wrote the book and the biggest thing this had to do with my life was more than the intellectual arguments or whatever, I, I think for many of my friends and the questions I had for myself, they at the at the root, they were questioning the character of God. Mm. You know, like if is God really good? Like if this is the picture that we see of God in the Bible, if this is what the Christian gospel declares who God it declares God to be, is that God really good? And I think because of that, on a heart level, it can keep us at times from fully and confidently trusting in God. And yet what I found was by actually being willing to sort of open the closet doors, so to speak, look at some of these dark parts of the the, the story, these things that we kind of want to avoid or shove under the carpet sometimes, I actually found myself growing, becoming more confident in the goodness mm. of God and being able to trust and go, man, if I can see your goodness in violence in the Old Testament, if I can see your goodness at work in the doctrine of hell and some of these different things, then I can see your goodness anywhere, you know? So um, I think at the end of the day, dude, why'd you write the book? My biggest hope was to help Christians who love Jesus, but wrestle with these topics to re regain a greater confidence in the goodness of Christ, the goodness wow. of God, the goodness of the biblical story. Um, and a side note there is I also found as I was wrestling with this, this is in the same season where I'm working in, Rwanda and Cambodia, both home to two of the worst genocides in the 20th century. You know, I'm um, working with anti-trafficking work in Burma and Thailand, like living uh, living overseas in some of the worst, like not like post-conflict war zones and in Liberia where you're just shattered by civil war. And I found these kind of quote unquote tough doctrines really ministering to me and having mm. amazing power to speak to some of these darkest, most tragic realities of our world. Oh, man, this is where like, dude, the power of hell is <laughs> clearly at work and God, we need you to come and deal with it. You know, like God, mm. we need your gospel to come and set things right. We need you to come and tear down Babylon, Holy War, so, you know, like in order to establish your good kingdom in its place. And so a comment that many have made uh, about the book to me that I really was encouraged by was going, you'd often these topics can feel like they're dealt with very abstractly 
sort of ethereal abstracting clouds, but you're able to connect them to some of the deepest pain points of our world in a way that really mm. provides hope and connects the the power of the gospel, like God's goodness, even in some of the darkest realities of our world. Mm. What kind of advice can you give pastors, particularly those that are in the teaching role, but even if you're not teaching, you're sitting in a coffee shop with someone in your congregation, these questions are coming up. What, what kind of advice can you give about wading into these conversations where you've got people, yeah. we don't know their whole stories. We don't know totally. the hurt they've experienced. We don't know what, out what their algorithms feeding them on YouTube, and we don't know what books they're reading, and or yeah. you know what they grew up around. So it's actually strong, and then we're like wading in and trying to represent the Christian worldview and do it in a way that's pastoral. Like, what kind of advice can you give, whether it's in a pulpit or a coffee shop, as we wade into these conversations? How do we do it? How do we? It's so intimidating at times, Josh, and it's like, yeah. Yeah, what kind of what, what what could help me, man? Help me as I'm trying to pastor in Vancouver, wade into yeah. really tough conversations. Yeah, well, uh, before I get to the pulpit, maybe the coffee. Let's start with the coffee shop. You know, and I think the power of listening. You know, like the ministry of the ear. Like I've just mm. found over the years, and especially here in America, like 2020, a lot of the division, a lot of the you know stuff everyone's seeing. I found like so much of the time how much power there is in simply listening how much people i think at the end of the day more than the right opinion or this do want to be heard you know and and when the you know one of the things we've talked a lot about here with our staff is the power of asking good questions hmm. uh, becoming good question askers because there is kind of this environment where dude social media online everybody's talking but i think many people don't actually feel heard you know hmm. and an embodied wow. conversation face-to-face -face, in a living room, in a coffee shop, in community, like with one another, like attentive listening with empathy and seeking to understand. Um, Kurt Thompson's got some great stuff, Christian Psychiatrist, which is how, dude, when you listen, when when you're sharing your story or sharing a struggle or sharing something with another person, embodied in person together, and they listen to you with empathy, like it rewires your brain circuitry like from mm. dysfunctional patterns to healthy patterns, it's actually shaping both of you, the person and the listener in the moment towards health. And I think that's because we were made to belong and have community. And, and so I think one of the biggest challenges right now is so many people are wrestling with their questions or their things online and shouting stuff into the echo chambers and whatever, you know, versus like um, in embodied relationship. And so as a pastor, often when someone comes in, had a conversation yesterday with you know someone coming in they were wrestling through some questions and all and, and i found man the the jesus judo of whatever like putting the question back towards them and, well yeah why is that question important to you or what you know what what's brought you what experience have you had that kind of you know brought you to the point of i know about that um i find that's really powerful uh, for many reasons but another one is like i've also found experientially there's often a question beneath the question you know, that, that there's usually, it may start on the intellectual level, but there's often something personal or experiential beneath it that's, um, that that's really driving the concern, you know? And if I can get to that, that's where you're actually able to really shepherd people, you know, mm. like beyond the, the, the abstract, whatever, heady stuff. And the, um, and then when it comes to the pulpit, I think if you're in the practice of doing that regularly as a pastor with your people, it's going to shape your preaching. 
you mm. know, like I think you just become a better preacher. And when it does come to the full, but I think, you know, the power of being able to name specifically and particularly where the tension points are, not to kind of sugarcoat them, not to go around, but like to name them and the power of being able to at times say, I don't know, you know, mm. <laughs> like, this is hard. I'm not sure what to do with it, you know, uh, but to still, you know, like, like to, to, um, yeah, to, to, to feel like we're able to name some of those tensions, honestly, uh, and to seek help. One of the things I love here at Redemption, uh, the church I'm at, is we have a preaching team at our church and a broader preaching collective. And so when it comes to the pulpit, I just came right an hour before this. I was with eight other pastors at different Redemption congregations, and we were processing through how are we going to preach this passage in Colossians next week? Like it's mm. got some thorny stuff to navigate. And how would you do it? How would you? Do it? And dude, one person had to save me. It's like, oh, that, that, there's my metaphor. There's my intro. There's my thing. You know, like brilliant. Preparing collaboratively versus solo has been um, massive for me. Hmm. I think I, this. I'm so grateful for that. And I think part of it too is I, I. I think what I'm about to say is a generalization. Doesn't reflect every stream of the church. But I feel like there's some issues. Whether it's hell, whether it's questions around sexuality or marriage. Um, violence in the Bible, any number of issues. I think there there has been maybe a movement, I don't know if it's more than 10 years old, where maybe we just won't address those is, issues in the pulpit. And then as a result, we're seeing essentially a group, a generation who's been pastored in a reading of scripture that omitted big parts of it. And so you've got this sort of perforated, sort of deformed, Christian worldview and an inability to actually, I'm not just talking about responding to the questions from those far from God, although that's deeply important, but just actually to integrate their own faith. And then, you know, something like Roe v v versus Wade becomes a conversation. You realize, oh, we haven't equipped people to engage holistically in this conversation or any number of issues. And so there, what I perceive from you is like a willingness to go, okay, I'm not going to not talk about this. Yeah. And then, but then knowing like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to actually teach in a pulpit through thorny, thorny patch of scriptures. Um, what has that felt like for you, you know, to go, yeah. hey, I might be misunderstood in this process, or I'm not going to be able to get this right in a 30 to 40 minute teaching slot, but I can't not address it. Totally, man. No, that's great. Well, a couple of things that we've tried to do, uh, trying to be creative, because another challenge that we have here as well is that we have a highly transient community. Tempe is very, people mm -hmm. are moving in, people are moving out, partly because right. it's a college town, partly because people want to get away from wherever and they come to the sun and then the sun gets too hot and they want to go. You know, like there's just, there's a lot of uh, people moving in, moving out roughly every four years. It feels like you've got a whole, you know, different uh, church. And so there was, you know, this sense of like, man, well, we talked about that three years ago, you know, but a lot of those folks aren't here anymore, you know? And so a, a few things that we, we've, you know, tried to do, uh, one has been to create some other avenues where we basically said, okay, if we were envisioning like a four year track, if someone was here for four years, what would we want to invest and pour into them? Which looks a little different than if you're thinking over a 10, 20 year track, you know? Um, and so we've got, we call it like our surge school. And that is a process that we, 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 we push a lot of people into. And it's, it's for people who are working other jobs or doing different stuff, but it's a, a really a 
core theological discipleship information, giving cool. some of the big hooks and giving some grid to actually interpret scripture well when it comes to some of the tough mm. stuff. Uh, we do an event called First Wednesday, where every first Wednesday of the month, we highlight a different topic. And so um, some of them are very much culture stuff. So we might hit abortion one month or race and justice another month, or, you know, uh, we, we've kind of, or, and sometimes it might be a tough biblical passage, you know, like a, a tough topic, like holy war in the Bible of violence, things of that nature. Um, and the other third one is um, we've created a, a, you know, a podcast specifically for our congregation, you know, so it's, it's not necessarily intended for whatever broader audience, but it is something that we'll refer to going, Hey, in this sermon today, there's not enough time to go into the depth to really do, do this well and justice. But I want to refer you this week. Uh, we've got a podcast launching with three of us. We're going to actually go deeper in that. So it's kind of resourcing those. And even just the mention, I think like puts in the water, like there are resources that you can go into in this. Cause I think one of the other challenges on our end can be like this liturgy of sacred time or, you know, like kind of what we're coming to in the story can almost, there's a pressure today increasingly, I think for that to get co-opted by um, at least, here in the States, what we're feeling to do it. I thought of it sometimes as like the new national liturgy of the crisis of the week, you know, like there's always some new yeah. crisis and there's the question from different people on different sides, depending on what the issue is. Are you going to talk to it? If you did, why did you talk to that one and not this one? And, and I do think it's appropriate that there are moments where you need to shepherd your people through something, whether national or proximate, uh, but there's also a tough discernment to go, what are the times that you do that? And yet, if you're doing that every week, does that kind of co-opt this liturgical formation of kind of sacred time and this bigger story that's bigger mm. than just this last month, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and so we've been trying to navigate that as a side note, but, you know, we've even tried to use kind of confession in our liturgy as a space uh, monthly, at least to have lament and to have space wow. created to actually have prayers of lament and corporate that, that is weaving in and speaking to some of the, like this week, you know, the, the massacre yesterday. Well, as we're recording this, there was yeah. a massacre yesterday in, in Texas. It was horrific. And so mm. um, our confession this week is going to have lament that's written specifically to address and shepherd people through that. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, the tension I felt early in ministry was ev- everything's on the sermon. You know, and what we've tried to do is actually create some release valves to go, well, Mm. hey, we can put that in the podcast. We can put that in a first Wednesday event. We can put that in equipping school. We can put that in a um, other parts of our liturgy. But uh, and and at times then when it is in the the sermon, the the message that will carry that much more punch and weight when Mm. it needs to. Well, you do an amazing job at it, man. Like some of the things I've just perceived is you've got like a courageous approach to saying, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to do PR for the Bible. You know, like it's, it's a book that unapologetically invite people into. So there's a courage to your teaching and preaching, but there's a real compassion to the listener and their stories. There's like a nuance that understands the cultural conversation, um, all happen at once and, and a real pastoral, like edge to it that's like around like hey this is a journey over time and i just really commend you for that and just so grateful for you and and just for anyone listening i couldn't just commend kind of even just poking around redemption 
Tempe's website and the intentionality around language. I was looking at it, preparing for this conversation. And I just, so many times like, oh, there's a thoughtfulness of language. Mm. And I know that reflects more than just you. It's a broader team. Um, and these different, you called them like different forums or avenues for teaching and for formation. It's it's really amazing. I'm just really grateful for for you, man, and the work you're doing. It's such a gift and we're all benefiting from it. Maybe as we, Thanks, as we kind of wrap up, I just love to hear like, just as you reflect on the last couple of years, every pastor, it's been exhausting in different ways. It's been a crucible in different ways. It's raised the question, am I in this? Like, am I committed to this? And I just wonder what reflections you have really personally, man, how are you doing? And how, what, when you, when you as a pastor are sitting with the Lord or first, I guess, as a disciple, and then as someone wrestling with what it means to be a pastor in our time, what's kept you afloat? What's like buoyed you? And you know, what, what are you taking with you out of this season into the years ahead? Mm. That's great, man. Um, a couple of thoughts, you know, yeah, obviously it's been brutal. Uh, and maybe to share a little, you know, personally, like one of the challenges I, I, I faced was, um, literally like the month, March, 2020, whatever it was when, when everything, you know, church shut down, everything was happening with the pandemic. Uh, I simultaneously had a, um, condition with my eyesight that, uh, at the time was, um, the doctors thought I was going blind. So I, yes. I basically went, went blind in one eye, my right eye and what they thought the condition was at the time thought it was coming from the neck. So I, I went through about a year, year and a half of kind of the crucible of thinking like I'm losing my sight and wow. I'm not, and I remember some of the biggest fears for me in that were, dude, what if I can't see my children's faces as mm. they grow up? And then even vocationally, like, God, I don't know how, how am I going to be able to preach or teach or read or write or any of these wow. things that I feel yeah. like I'm calling. Um, and so, man, it, so, and then all of that on top of, you know, it's 2020 and you're trying to lead through the most divisive, whatever, you know, season I've ever and in, and in Arizona where it's not totally. one side or another, like you've got it all happening and totally. you've got, got a fractured yeah. city. Totally. I mean, you've got, you've got complexity anywhere. Portland has its complexities, but Portland, at least it felt a little more like an echo chamber where everyone was kind of the same page. I know there's other echo chambers in the South. Tempe, it's like, like it gets all, I, I, I'd say about half our congregation is red, half our congregation is blue. Like you're kind of in the university environments. You've got all the college students that are going to lean more left. And yet you're like right adjacent to MAGA, Trump country, dark red, like they're going to be more right. And they're all, yeah, man. And so, so it was really, um, to say it was interesting yeah. <laughs> to lead, lead through that well. Uh, but in the midst of it, um, well, I guess to start on the personal front with the eyesight, the big piece yeah. that I felt Christ asking me through that season was, do you trust me? You know, mm. and just going, yeah, but, <laughs> and like really peeling back these layers in my heart of, of going, getting to the spot going, yeah, like, I trust you. Jesus. like, not, not what if, like, not what if I lose my eyesight, but even if, you know, like, even mm. if I, lose, and, and just realizing like, man, um, wow, there are a lot of people who are blind and live fulfilling good lives. And if I truly believe my identity is not wrapped up in what I do and, you know, it's in God's love for me. Like, so it really felt like this invitation to that season into deeper intimacy with the father. 
Mm. Um, even as it felt like a lot of things societally and in the church as well, like, you know, felt like they were crumbling down uh, in just church nationally and internationally, you know, um, were crumbling down around you. Uh, and also I found myself though in a weird spot because I would talk with many friends who were pastors and understandably their tension was often, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And this is just my personal journey, but I was in this spot of kind of the opposite question of going, what if I can't do this anymore? Right. Wow. And wow. As, as some of the eyesight stuff has gotten sorted out now, this is again, just me personally, I, I don't want to minimize the the pain and, you know, the frustration that many are going through in, in, in ministry, um, but just where I've been at personally has been kind of like celebrating, like, man, this is a great privilege to get to minister God's word and to seek to cultivate a community in the spirit and the presence of Christ for his people, even amidst all the storms. And so one, one big thing for me has been just as hard as it can get, like recognizing kind of the immensity of that, that privilege, you know, uh, to, to, to minister in, in the, go the gospel in this kind of way. And the second one has been team, uh, mm. You know, so we have a, a co-lead model here. So me and Jim Mullins, uh, we, we co-lead as pastors in the church together. And I honestly, I, I think, I'm not saying every church has to do that or whatever, but but I'm saying like, I would not be, I think I would not be in a healthy spot right now if mm -hmm. I had been trying to navigate this thing on my solo, you know, at that those highest levels of leadership. And I think I can say I'm at a very healthy spot right now because of Jim, you know, because of, wow. and I think he'd say the same thing, like us being able to navigate through all this together and process through it together. And whatever that looks like, you know, like in, in people's individual context, I don't think it needs to necessarily be a co-lead model, but I do think that like the importance of leadership team, you know, of not being siloed and on your own and, uh, yeah. We've been able to process through tough decisions beforehand, think through creative ways to do it more strategically. We've been able to, when I'm getting hit hard, he's able to jump in and take more of the load. When he's getting hit hard, I'm able to jump in and take more of the load, you know? Um, and that's been a game changer. Hmm. Oh, I love hearing that, man. Um, well, I'm thankful for you. Thankful for our time together and uh, for you making time to be with us. I'm excited about the work you're working on right now, upcoming books. We'll put all this stuff in the show notes. And uh, thanks for giving us so much time today. It's such a gift. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Loved it, man. It's great. Well, a big thank you to Josh for taking the time to chat with us. It was a joy to have you in the Zoom room. And we're so glad we got to share this conversation. If you'd like to check out any of Josh's books, we have links in the description to this episode. Feel free to do that before swiping out of whatever app you're in. And a reminder that this podcast and the other work that we do at CCLN is only possible because of generous partners, individuals, organizations, and churches who want to come alongside pastors to see them and more churches thrive in Canada. If you want to give, please consider becoming part of our monthly giving community. You can do that at ccln.ca slash partner. Also, we would love to hear from you about almost anything. If you have encouraging stories about what the Lord is doing in your church, pastors near you who you want to hear on the podcast, prayer requests, we would love to hear any of it. You can just shoot us a message on Instagram at Church Leaders Network or an email at contact at ccln.ca. 
Okay, that's it for me. Thanks for all you do to serve Jesus and his church wherever you are. We bless you this week in Jesus' name. Bye for now.